Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha. Happy New Year. Good to see you all. I hope you're well and had a great holiday season. Uh, if you were traveling or if, or if you weren't, uh, if you were here, uh, glad to have you uh, back. Uh, but again, if you're visiting, welcome to our church. We are in a series right now on the Gospel of John. We're going to get back into it today. We took two weeks off for Christmas, some Christmas Adventy uh, themed sermons, and we're back into uh, John 3, 9 to 15 today. So if you have uh, one of those folders, there's a sermon insert in there. If you want to follow along on that or a Bible or phone app, you go ahead and turn there. Uh, I, I do want um, to uh, catch up to speed on where we were, though, a few weeks ago, because today is uh, part two of two of Jesus and Nicodemus and their conversation. So if you're here for that in mid-December, um, we are going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, but if you weren't, or even if you were and kind of forgot where, uh, kind of where we were in that passage... Um, I want to catch up to speed a little bit here just with a few things. So uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So remember, think religious elite or think kind of seminary professor, uh, looked up to older guy who uh, had led people spiritually for much of his life. He came to Jesus at night uh, to um, have a conversation, sort of, but he leads off with more of a statement. He says, we know that you are a teacher from God because of all these miracles you're doing. Uh, and so Jesus then uh, hears that, receives it, but then flips the conversation on its head and uh, re- starts to reveal himself to Nicodemus on his own terms and kind of moves him past things that matter less and uh, moves him to things that matters more, which is really encouraging, isn't it, that Jesus does that because he does that for us as well. We may have questions about things that, that do matter, but they might matter less in the grand scheme. And if God knows that, he, and he cares about us and loves us, then he's going to move us past those things uh, to more of himself, uh, more of things that matter more in the eternal. So basically, Jesus dictates the conversation. Uh, that becomes clear right away in the first part of chapter 3. Uh, he said, the big thing he says, though, uh, a lot of you might even be uh, familiar with this, this uh, phrase and terminology, even if you're not uh, that privy to this greater conversation, but he says, uh, Jesus does, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again, which, which is to say, in order to be saved, you must do something you cannot do. Uh, then he doubled down by saying, you must be born of the Spirit, and to be born of the Spirit, you must be blown upon by the wind, but no one can see or capture the wind or work for it to blow upon us. No one in the room has done that, right? We haven't worked uh, or, or done something in order to get the wind to blow, to blow upon us. Natural wind, not fans. Uh, so natural wind, right? Uh, and so Jesus basically kind of doubles down on that idea of the impossibility of salvation when it comes to us and our work uh, by likening the movement of the Spirit to, uh, and the movement of salvation essentially to, uh, to wind. Uh, and, and, he, and he talked about uh, the idea of being surprised by grace and how grace is best when it's, uh, when it's a surprise. We took a number of bunny trails off of all of that, but essentially came back to, the, to that same principle of being saved by God's grace, not by our works, saved by the Spirit, not the flesh, by the wind, not a clock, by something God can do alone, not something that we can do with our moral prowess. Uh, as John says earlier in the Gospel, which I think is a very stage-setting verse for the Gospel, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, not only because it is uh, in the first chapter, but because uh, the rest of the scriptures uh, teach this and show it to be a main player uh, thematically in the biblical story. He says in verse 17, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's keep reading today. We're going to look at this idea of beholding the snake from John 3, 9 to 15. As we read, uh, just look for how these kind of themes continue because Jesus is 
going to repeat some things, but also move us from less clarity to more clarity uh, as well. So uh, keep an eye, eye open for, uh, for that, for, for more of the how, essentially, behind these things, which uh, if you remember from last or a few weeks ago, but also we'll see this week, it's kind of Nicodemus' big question, right? Is how can someone be born again? How can I do something I cannot do? Uh, which is the, the, the natural question, the right question, actually. He's, he's kind of getting it. He's kind of not. We talked about that. But he's kind of understanding the, when he feels the weight of impossibility because it's driving him more and more and more to Jesus. All right, so let's pick up in verse 9 today. And we'll actually read this whole passage in full. Uh, and we'll come back and look at two, kind of two big, there's two big sections here really to this passage. So we'll break it down along those lines. Uh, verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All right, so I want to pick up on something I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, and that is the, this idea that this is probably uh, the most frustrating conversation in Nicodemus's life. We don't know that for sure, of course, but it had to be up there. Uh, verse 9, again, how can these things be? I, I think there's a lot of desperation in that question. Uh, but again, a difficult conversation for someone who was, an, again, an older religious elite who was looked up to for much of his life, who maybe had memorized swaths of the Old Testament, who, knew, who thought he knew a thing or two, and maybe he did, but who put some kind of credit before God onto those things. Uh, but Jesus knocks the legs completely out from underneath all of that, from his table of righteousness, from his sense of goodness, when he talks more about rebirth than he does the law. In fact, there's no, there's no talk at all about the law or the commandments of God in this passage. Uh, Jesus talks more about things uh, that cannot be done by people, that, uh, that are um, more ethereal, that are more invisible, that, that are more impossible, uh, hence, hence Nicodemus' uh, response, right? So, um, so it makes sense that he would ask, how can these things be? It, it logically follows. It, it shows that this is as far as he can go. As far as Nicodemus can go is to ask that question. Uh, Jesus didn't show Nicodemus the next rung in the ladder and where to place his foot. Instead, he completely took the rungs out of the ladder so that it was impossible to climb. Uh, it might feel like he further twists the knife when he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand? Isn't this your job? You know, you could maybe kind of plug in things like that. Uh, th this is an interesting question, and it could be read different ways, but sometimes this question that, that Jesus asks him gets read as, uh, you should have understood, uh, Nicodemus. Uh, the, the whole Old Testament is about me. Uh, and, and there's certainly a lot of truth to that. There are hermeneutical or interpretational implications to this, to this in the sense that Nicodemus read the Bible wrong. Uh, this comes up later in John 5 as well. Nicodemus read the Bible as though it was more about him. Uh, less about the, the coming promised one or coming Messiah. And so there's a lot of implication here for us as well uh, when we read the Bible. Do we read it as though it's more about us or more about Jesus? And, and there is something to that uh, for sure. But I think on the same level, if not even more, in context, the question I think has um, less to do with you should have known, 
Nicodemus, and more simply with, you don't know Nicodemus, you don't understand, even you, one of the teachers of Israel. And it's true for us as well. Uh, we also, whether we're teachers or not, whether we've read the Old Testament or not, whether we're, we might consider ourselves privy to spiritual matters, uh, but even all of us in this very room today, we also don't understand, uh, speaking of the things of salvation and of God. It's hard to see in our English translations, but uh, John here is actually bouncing back and forth between the singular and the plural uh, with the you's. Sometimes the you is in the singular, sometimes it's the second person plural, uh, so if, unless you have a y'all there or something, um, you, you, you just don't see it. Actually, some translations say you people uh, to, to refer to, not just Nicodemus, but it's just a sign that there's a broader audience here. It's not just Nicodemus, but John the author and Jesus as well uh, is, is keen in on this idea that Nicodemus is a microcosm. He's a picture of us in how with our religious efforts we, we think that we can go before Jesus and and have the answers, and as if that's enough. Uh, he's a picture of uh, us in our moral prowess, our struggle to, be, to sort of be the change in the world and to do what is right and even to understand God himself. Uh, what this passage is saying is that, that for Nicodemus and for us, but for, for Nicodemus, none of that has done him any good or, or been to his credit. And that's what we need to come to terms with if we are to enter God's kingdom, which again is an idiom for being saved for being close to God again. Entering back into the new Garden of Eden uh, as God has been at work uh, getting us back, right? But the way back is Christ, not ourselves. And then we need to see in verse uh, 11, so, um, and, and this is something we started to see a couple of weeks ago as well. We're, we will see it here and one other time today actually too because Jesus is loving playing this on repeat. Uh, but there is an exception to the idea of misunderstanding, right? So, you don't understand, but verse 11 says, well, well we do understand. The, the we here likely meaning those disciples of his who were beginning to get it and understand. Remember, John wrote this too after the resurrection, so he's likely writing this back in uh, to make an evangelistic or apologetic point. But, but the point is here that no one understands except Jesus and those he reveals truth to. Uh, Romans 3.11 says this very matter-of-factly, no one understands no, not one. Not one person understands the things of salvation. Not one person understands God enough or themselves enough uh, to climb one inch upwards towards him. Uh, the, the contrast here is meant to be stark and to be reminiscent of the idea that no one saves themselves, no one's done enough, all have sinned and fallen short, to quote Romans 3 elsewhere. Uh, but Jesus does understand. Jesus has come to solve the mystery of, you could say, the misunderstanding of salvation. And so the gospel then says to people, uh, and this is why um, I think it was a frustrating conversation probably for Nicodemus, uh, but for all of us, because we're all proud. Uh, it doesn't matter who we are or what our experiences have been. Uh, this is how we start life. We start full of ourselves, as though we're the center of the universe. I mean, if you have kids, look at kids, right? This is how they start their life, is it's all about me. It's just, it's impossible not to. Uh, this is partly what sin is. And so for Nicodemus, this is a frustrating thing. For us, this is frustrating. But the idea is that the gospel says to people that they're not good enough. This is part of the message. Uh, we are not good enough and we never will be. In fact, the more that we try to be good, the farther away from God we get. 
Uh, no one understands. No one saves themselves. Uh, and so we need a different solution uh, altogether. And so he continues that actually in verses 13 and 14. Let me read this again actually just so it's, um, so it's maybe a bit more clear but also fresh on your mind as we unpack it. Verse 13. Jesus continues by saying, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All right, so verse, a couple of things. There's basically one idea here, but it breaks down uh, pretty neatly into a couple of verses. But verse 13, same idea yet again, right? No one has ascended into heaven. Um, I think sometimes it helps to just put a period right in the middle of a sentence, even if it's not there, just to kind of feel the weight and the starkness of what's being said. But the Bible says no one has ascended into heaven. No one. Let that sink in. And just kind of ask yourself even like what, what you feel when you, when you hear that or what you think, what you picture. No one's ascended. No one's gone up to God. That includes the best of the best humanity has had to offer. No one who's ever lived. No one who lives today. No one who's been the best, uh, the, the, um, the, the best picture of what a human being could be, the best potential, uh, the, the, the best innovation, the best love, the best humility, uh, the best volunteerism, uh, the best global-mindedness. None of that. Uh, th- that person has not entered, has not gone up. But it also includes us. Wherever we put ourselves on that spectrum of good to bad, right? No one. Good people haven't gone up. Bad people haven't gone up. But it includes us. And, and by now, this shouldn't shock us, but here it is again. There's another exception clause, just like from before, right? Where it said, no one understands except Jesus. Well, it's the same here. No one's gone up except Jesus, the one who descended to us. Do you see how important this theme is? how we can tend to move on in our minds, but how Jesus wants us to hear it over and over again from different angles, using different words, different word pictures maybe, uh, different ideas, but it's the same thing. Uh, No one has gone up. No one understands. Uh, No one can be born again. Uh, But Jesus is always the exception uh, to the the impossibility of, of these ideas. There's one person who has ascended, who has gone up to God, and it's actually the one who came down. It's the Son of Man. The Son of Man is an Old Testament messianic name for Jesus, essentially. So when Jesus says the Son of Man, he's referring to himself. But this is a great image. I've said this before a lot, even recently, because these themes have come up in John, even. But um, Christianity, I think a few weeks ago we said Christmas because we're in Advent, but Christianity broadly is the story of how God came down not how man has gone up. So, so we dare not miss him on the, the ascent or our, our self-perceived ascent, whatever that means for us. Uh, or to use kind of a um, more of a morbid uh, human example here, but there's a reason why hundreds of frozen dead bodies line the slopes of Mount Everest and why we can't breathe at the top and why we start to die at a certain altitude and why life is just better at the bottom. And that's not a and that's not a knock on mountain climbing. That's great if you're into that. Uh, go for it. Uh, but spiritually speaking, this is there, there's an example here, right? This is this is why Jesus speaks in human terms as he talks about heavenly terms. 
There's a reason why people die when they climb that high. Uh, we weren't meant to. We can breathe better. It's warmer down here. We were meant to be at the bottom of the mountain, not to climb to him. And things get, get, get problematic for us when we uh, start to flip that around. Uh, Chad Bird says, speaking of uh, the accuser here, he's referring to Satan or the devil. Uh, he says, the accuser's greatest fear is that we will hear that his enemy has come to set us free. Uh, and I added here, and to tell us to stop climbing. Uh, the, the, the devil's greatest fear is not that you would do good, but that you would hear the gospel. That's his greatest fear. In fact, the devil might love it if you would do good apart from Christ. Uh, it, it's, uh, it might be the very thing that, that keeps you from him. In fact, for a lot of people it is. Um, Self-perceived goodness, right? Why would we need Jesus if we're a pretty good person? Uh, but the devil actually, his, uh, you know that old, that old thing of seeing like an angel on one shoulder and, the, and a devil on the other? Um, that's, that's actually not Christianity at all. Uh, the, the devil's not whispering uh, all the time, do bad. I mean, that may be some, something he does uh, sometimes. But that's not really the, the main thing. It's not, oh, there's this good side and bad side, yin and yang, that kind of idea. Uh, actually, the devil might whisper, do a lot of good, uh, but do it apart from Christ. Uh, do it to bolster your own uh, self-sufficiency. To show off, uh, to prove your worth, to climb, and to look down at others along the way. But instead, uh, the devil has a different kind of M.O. Like, biblically, if, if you look at what the devil's M.O. is, uh, there's primarily two things. He, and Chad Bird gets at one of them. He's the accuser. Uh, Satan actually is a word that means adversary. He's the enemy. He's also the accuser. The second thing is he's a liar. Uh, so he accuses you and me in the sense that he wants us to feel guilt. He wants us to feel shame. Um, it, it, he, in, in, our, in our temptation and leading into sin and doing, doing sin, uh, whatever that might mean, he wants us to feel guilt and shame. Um, if you've ever um, heard that, if you're a Christian and you've heard in your mind the phrase, I'm such a bad Christian, that's not from God. God never says you're just a bad Christian. That's the devil. He wants you to be accused. He wants to expose your sin. He wants to make you feel like you're just a bad Christian. You're just bad at this Christian thing. It's always from the pit of hell, never from God. So that's the one thing is he's an accuser. He accuses of sin. The other side, though, is he's a liar. And this is the part that gets missed a lot. Uh, the other MO, the other main thing the, the devil's doing in the world is lying to us that we can do something about our shame that we can do something about our guilt, that we can become like God and solve our problems. This goes back to Genesis 3. That's the lie, is not just that you have shame and guilt now, but that you can do something about it. You are able. You see, so a lot of times the, 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 um, the motivation is misplaced, uh, but the shame and guilt we have leads us back to ourselves and not to Jesus. And the devil loves that. And this is kind of what this quote is getting at here. And I think in the spirit of what we're seeing in John 3, um, the gospel is the sword that cuts the head off the dragon. This is uh, from Revelation 12, uh, if you've read that. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we're saved by grace, not by works, is the only sword. It's the only weapon you guys have. The only thing you can fight with is that it's not you fighting. The only weapon you have is to realize you're weaponless like Israel was. Remember their story in the Old Testament? They're a picture of the church. They fought without weapons and won a lot of times. 
to show that it wasn't them. They marched around the walls of Jericho and didn't touch it, but it fell down to show that it's not them doing it. So the lessons begin there, the the types, the pictures, the whispers, but the reality is here in the New Testament when Jesus is getting very clear and talking about rebirth and talking about understanding and talking about sin and in talking about what the solution is being outside of us, not in. He actually drives, so he drives the point home uh, even further here um, in verse 14 when he says, um, and I think Grant's greater clarity, I, actually I'd also say um, this really starts to answer Nicodemus's question of how can this be? So we're kind of coming a little bit full circle here. Um, it starts pretty unclear and gets clear. That's your Bible, by the way. Uh, the Old Testament's less clear. The New Testament's more clear. It's meant to be that way, actually. The end interprets the beginning, clarifies the beginning. Uh, Jesus is, these 15 verses in John 3 are a microcosm of that. It starts foggy, parable-like, kind of unclear. But here at the end, it gets, uh, it gets much more. So um, but what I think he's doing is putting his spin on the idea of ascension in verse 14. So that ascension might not mean to us, well, Jesus ascended, okay, let me try to be like him. So that we don't get to that conclusion, uh, he says verse 14 and, and 15, essentially. And to do that, he takes us back to an Old Testament story from Numbers 21, which is about a rebellion, uh, Israel rebelling, sinning, a, a plague from God of snakes that were sent in response to their sin, but then a surprising remedy from God as well. I'll read just the end here of, um, of the story. This is from Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. It says, The Lord said to Moses, this is after the people cry out for help. They're being bitten by vipers and being poisoned and dying. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Okay, so lots going on here. A couple things, though, that stick out, especially as this relates to John 3, uh, is the first thing is this is an Old Testament story, right? So this happened when Israel was in covenant with God, uh, mediated by law. And yet, there's no law-keeping in sight. There's no washings that were required. There's no commandment-keeping. In fact, uh, it was their failure to keep the commandments that led to the snakes in the first place. And there was no religious ritual, no Sabbath-keeping, right right down the list. None none of that. This this passage is is void of all of that. It's, It's shockingly absent. What's present, though, is just looking just beholding. Uh, and this is an example of how in the Bible you have these stories that break patterns. Uh, this is a law usurping story, especially because we know that Jesus says, I'm actually the point of the story, right? He's saying, the story existed for me. I'm the snake on the pole. Uh, the, the pole is like the cross. I'm like the snake. He's likening himself to a, an actual remedy, right? But not just from venom, from sin. And so th- these are, this is an example of a blip, uh, on the radar, an a, uh, interruption uh, of the pattern of otherwise people being mediated to God based on law-keeping and what they do. This is a blip because nothing else is required, just simply looking. In your state of sin, looking. In your state of imperfection, looking and being healed of the, the venom inside. 
That's the first. I will come back to that. The, first, the second piece, though, is Jesus likens himself here to a snake. I don't know if you ever wondered that when you read this story, but isn't that interesting? Like Jesus is likening himself, not just to this broader story, but likening himself to a reptile, to a snake. And why that's odd or, and maybe offensive is because snakes were unclean animals in the Old Testament. They were the animal the devil disguised himself as back in Genesis 3. Even on a more experiential basis, snakes are like one of the more hated animals in existence. Like today, right? Some of you might be budding herpetologists here or something, uh, but that's great. But most of you, like if you said, what are the, what's the worst kind of animal, probably would like throw a snake up there on your top, whatever, right? Uh, there's a reason for that. But Jesus says, I'm like the snake. So why a snake and not a lamb or a lion or a dove? God, God, did you forget that serpents are unclean? God, did you forget that, that serpents are representative of evil in the Bible? And of course he didn't, right? There's purpose here. Uh, but Jesus is likened to a serpent because Jesus on the cross becomes unclean for you and me. This is not a sanitary thing. He's the Lamb of God dying for the sins of the world. That's one way to look at it because he's the sacrifice. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. Another way to look at it, though, from a different angle, is to look at this story what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm not just the lamb. I'm also uh, the snake on the pole. And the reason for that is because I'm going to become unclean. I'm going to become evil for you, even though I'm not evil. I'm going to become sin, even though I knew no sin. I'm going to wear your darkness and your wickedness for those six hours on the cross. And I'm going to be crucified in the most shameful and humiliating and painful of ways. Uh, another way to look at the cross would be to say um, the Lamb of God is becoming a snake uh, in uh, you know, the most backwards, scandalous, and horrific moments of, of all of history. The Son of God becoming sin, though he knew no sin, dying in our place and in love for us. He loves you guys. And some, some of the times, like the way to really feel that is to see, you know, how is Jesus talking about the cross? Like, it's one thing to say, what do you think about what do the songs say that we sing here? That those are good things, but what is the Bible saying more broadly, but more specifically, what is Jesus saying about what happened there? About himself there? And, and the reality is that Jesus views the cross in a more darker way than you do. It's more scandalous than you and I think. It's more atrocious, more hideous, more dark. And, and one way for him to get the point across is to liken himself here to the same animal the devil disguised him as. is an unclean, untouchable, uh, filthy, wicked uh, animal. And, and so that then, all of that and more is, um, sometimes here we call this like unadulterated, pure Christianity. Uh, you know, that's what it is. This is the essence, and this is the beginning, and this is the middle, and this is the end. Or as Robert Capon put it, uh, the gospel is 200 proof grace uh, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. And in the end, John 3 is really quite simple. There's three parts to it. You must be born again. It's a question of how that's impossible. Well, the answer is by looking at Jesus on the cross and believing in him. That's it. And I don't know if you guys knew that or not. Most of you probably did. Some of you forgot. Some of you would maybe overcomplicate things and add more to this. 
when it comes to salvation, but Jesus doesn't. Because the beautiful thing here, especially with number three, linking with numbers 21, is that all of you can look. Anybody can look, right? Those of you who are good and those of you who are bad can look. Those who are intelligent and those who are simple. Those who are rich, those who are poor. Those of you who doubt and those who don't. Both of you can look. Those of you who feel far from God and those who feel near. Both of you can look. Those who feel like they're working to fulfill the Great Commission and those who don't feel like they're working to fulfill the Great Commission. Both of you can look. Those who lead, those who follow. Those who prayed this morning and those who didn't. Both of you can look. Those who understand the Bible well and those who don't. Those with troubled marriages and those with great marriages. Those who are afraid, those who are courageous. I could go on and on and on. But the point is, There's no distinction because of grace. There's no distinction anymore. We set up these categories when God doesn't. In Christ, there is no partiality. Because it's by grace we're saved, not by works. All of those types of people, wherever you are on the spectrum, every single day, it doesn't matter, ultimately. Because you can look, you can behold, right? You can look at the snake, you can look at the pole, ah, but you can look at Christ on the cross, the fulfillment of that story, and you can be saved. It's the only thing required. And we might say, yeah, but what about all those other things? What about all, all that I've done for God? Doesn't that get recognized somehow? And you can see how offensive this becomes for proud people and for the strong. Because there are no yeah, buts to grace. Otherwise, it would no longer be grace. But guys, what this is saying is God loves you as you are. If you're anxious or not anxious, you can look. Depressed or not, you can look. Sick or healthy, you can look. God loves you. There's no ascension required. And you, do you know why? This passage says because he has ascended. See, it's not an example to follow. It's a substitution. No ascension required because he's the one who's ascended, the one who's descended to us. He was lifted up for you and me. And so the invitation here is to believe in him, to come down the mountain. Don't go up, come down. Rest at the feet of Jesus and believe in him and you'll be saved. Christian and non-Christian alike in the room and myself, this is, the message is the same. What I really like about John 3 as well is that um, It's one thing to understand those concepts. It's another thing to see that Jesus himself is saying these things. These are the the red letters, so to speak, right? Jesus is saying right here, clear as day, I want you to look at me on the cross. Jesus is saying, I want you to see me suffering for your sins. That's the whole point of Numbers 21, right? I want to be raised up on the cross, and I want you to look at me there and be saved. Because unless I'm lifted up, unless I'm put up on that pole, unless you see me and behold and trust that that's enough to forgive you of your sins, there's no hope. And so this gets very personal. This is not simply to look, but it's to say that Jesus wants you to look. He's saying, look upon me when I'm lifted up high off the ground on a wooden cross. That's what John 3 is saying. This is how 
these moments when we read our Bibles or when, a, when preaching happens get holy because right now in this room, this is what he's saying to you. Whether you believe it or don't, some of you don't, some of you do. What are you going to do? Because God is speaking. He's saying, I am lifted up. I want you to look at me and believe. To all of you, whether that's brand new message or to those of you who have moved on from the cross and have what might be regarded as a cross-less theology, you've graduated from it. Jesus says here, we can't do that. There's, there's nowhere else to go. I want you to look. That's why I have the pictures of Jesus on a cross every week, so repetitiously. We have to see him there. We have to believe that he did that. We have to put our faith back in him there and not move on. It's personal to you and me, to all of us. God is speaking. The Son of God speaks off of these pages with these words and invites us to, to, to ask, can I hear what he's saying? Do I hear? Can I understand what's going on here? Can I hear his voice? And to look and to be born again and remade uh, by looking at Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this passage, um, that it is dripping with grace. Uh, I pray, God, that you would humble us, those of us who are strong, uh, or think we are, those of us who think we understand, that you would, uh, but then kind of bolster us, build us up in our faith. Uh, Those of us who believe, those who don't, I I pray that that you would create faith in their heart, uh, help them to see and understand that God came down, um, and he's staying. Uh, heaven's coming to earth someday. Uh, we are not going to go up to heaven and be there forever. Uh, the, the descent of God is eternal. God is coming to earth, Revelation says. Um, heaven is coming down to earth. The new Jerusalem is coming out of heaven, down to earth. The new city that we'll all dwell in and see your face and where you wipe our tears away. And we're all of, and we're, we'll no longer have a misunderstanding of salvation, but we will truly see and understand and be made whole forever. God, I pray that for the rest of our service, for your guidance and for these truths to sink in, that your spirit would help us all to take just healthy, biblical bunny trails in our mind uh, into things in our life where this is relevant and um, that we be built up and saved uh, afresh. In Christ we pray, amen.